Hello, hello everyone. This is Heather. And this is Kara. And you're listening to I'm Not Complaining. I'm just asking. It's our podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This episode is going to be all about the film saga Blade Runner. The first, the second, and of course, the novel that it was based on. Kara, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the films Blade Runner? very dark neon lights uh robots that look like humans and harrison ford and do you like our owl (laughs) is it real i don't know if it is or not i think it's expensive (laughs) so we have a very special guest today joining us back on the pod is our guest miguel Hey, Miguel. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back. Glad to be back and talk about my favorite subject, uh, films. <laughs> As we mentioned at the top, uh, today we are talking all about the Blade Runner saga. So listeners, if you've never watched either film, press pause right now and go watch them. And then come right back here because there are major spoilers ahead. So let me give you a moment. Okay, welcome back. So where do you want to start? Well, first let's talk about uh, Philip K. Dick's story. uh, You know, um, do androids dream of electronic sheep, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I guess we can start there, because that's that's the basis of it. And I think both films try to tackle... um, you know what what it is to be human what the meaning of being human is and um they don't specifically use the term android um because uh it suggests that it might be a robot but in blade runner and blade runner 2049 these manufactured humans are in fact completely organic but they are artificial so uh that's where we can start i guess yes uh to your point the term replicant is not used anywhere um, in the original novel uh, written by Philip K. Dick. Uh, The creatures in the source novel are called androids and Andes uh, in the book. Uh, The movie, as you said, uh, did not use those terms at all and decided to use the word replicant because the screenwriter, his daughter, uh, was studying microbiology and biochemistry at the time and she introduced him to the theory of replication, which is used for cloning purposes. So that's where that term came from. Right, right. While we're talking about the source novel, the author, he wrote so many incredible things, and some of his other well-known novels is also Total Recall and The Minority Report. So, crazy. um, Made him from, you know, turned him into... Uh, a big name because a bunch of his films started to get adapted so I think it's uh, it's, it's a pretty um, culturally it's very influential film just for that because it, it started a whole new franchise and a Total Recall was remade so there's another one of those films it's, it's just a whole generation of filmmakers uh, science fiction writers were inspired by um, Blade Runner coming out it was just uh, it was quite the event but like Blade Runner 2049, it was a box office uh, failure. It did 
grossed a little more than its production budget, but it uh, wasn't enough to recoup marketing and the fact that you know theaters take nine, you know they they take ten percent of the ticket sales for the first week, twenty percent second, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, the philosophy of the films is the really interesting thing to talk about and how they're a little non-conventional, but it's also the reason why they led to like having a little bit of box office failure. Um, all of other, all the other um, intellectual uh, property that was adapted after Philip K. Dick, uh, that you know, after Android's Dream Electronic Sheet, were box office successes. So I think it'd be really interesting to talk about um, how the philosophy of Blade Runner and Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and uh, you know how deep the movie is, how that made it so that a general audience couldn't really consume it. Right. And to your point about the production values, um, the original film, uh, the production was $28 million and the box office was $41 million. And the newest one, uh, Blade Runner 2049, which was released in 2017, uh, the production was $185 million and the box office was $260 million. They need to make about double the budget or more to actually be profitable. Because if you go see a movie and you pay ten bucks, uh, you know um, the studio doesn't get ten bucks. The studio gets anywhere from five to nine dollars, depending on what the deal was when they released the movie, and then um, the theater gets the rest. So right, uh, yeah. So I don't think the I don't think the first one was considered as a box office success, even though it grossed more than its budget. Um, it you know it didn't. Uh, I think with the marketing costs and all that, I don't think it actually was able to recoup this budget. So the director of Blade Runner 2049, Dennis Villeneuve, he has been on the record and says that his film is probably the most expensive art house film ever made because people just didn't get it. Um, so... He's the people who made the film are fully aware that they went maybe a little bit too far um, over the edge, and that's why the masses <clears throat> didn't receive it as well. Correct. Yeah. 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 Which I think makes it so great and so awesome to talk about. Yes. So, director of the first film, Wrigley Scott, was also heavily involved in the second film, and he sympathizes somewhat with the second director because he felt like, oh, maybe I exerted too much influence and encouraged him too much to push harder, to have the really slow pacing, which is something that most audiences don't have the patience for. But see, for me, I think that's what's so amazing about the second film is that it's not afraid to slow everything down. And it takes the long pauses and it let's all the imagery just wash over you and I feel like the pacing of it when it's slow in the slow scenes and it lets you just be saturated by the color and the bigness of the set design it's almost demands more of your attention because it's so quiet and you have to pay so much attention that it almost like lulls you into like this hypnotic trance. And I don't know, it must have been really intense of an experience to actually sit 
in a dark movie theater with all these people and watch the second film because I mean you'd be so afraid to just like move in your seat because you'd like miss something because the it it just is so quiet and you have to pay so much attention it like when I watch the second film I feel like my heart rate slows down I feel like all my anxiety just drops because you have to be so still to be able to absorb everything um, so for me I like the feeling that I get when I watch the second film as opposed to the first film because I feel like the first film there's so much loudness and crowds and really dark imagery and the shadows and the lighting but I don't know which which of the two do you prefer I like the original because I think the original Blade Runner is still able to succeed as a film that is, even though it wasn't consumed by general audiences at the time, it was later. It was a big hit when it came to uh, to video, and it's very widely known and very widely watched. Uh, 2049 didn't really enjoy that same, um, that same success and cult following. But I think one of the problems with 2049 is it does take its time too much, and um, Jared Leto's performance is really freaking weird, and it's just a big turnoff in the movie for me. Also, like a lot of the, a lot of the fight scenes, you know, um, besides you know the ending uh, a water fight scene with uh, with Officer K. Um, and uh, uh, what's what's her name? Lo- uh, her her character name is Love L U V. Is it really Love? It is. Uh, I had to look it up. I don't know if it's ever actually spoken, but that's what it's listed as. Honestly, I prefer the original, uh, the original Blade Runner, because I think that it succeeds more as a story. It doesn't take its time as much as the new one. In the original Blade Runner. We have a lot of epic and memorable scenes. Um, the uh, the ending monologue by the android Roy. Oh. You know, uh, like you know, all those moments lost in time, like tears and rain. Oh, um, gosh. We don't really get that. Um, Agent K, uh, Officer K, in uh, later in 2049, he's he's pretty quiet and uh, put him in a nice room to to talk more because it's not like a replicant can't talk. You know, we had uh, we had Roy in the in the first one, just you know, which which was you know in one of the best performances of all time. Um, it, it told a more, I think it told a told more like cohesive story, and uh, it set up a lot of world building, and the cinematography was still very revolutionary for the time and really good. The way that um, they did the production design for the sets and started a whole new genre which is you know cyberpunk and it's like a you know the, the neo-noir style just just really worked and uh so I, I like i actually prefer the the first one however you know as a, as a cinematographer i appreciate the visuals of the second one a lot more they they don't play it safe quite as often roger deakins is is you can see his style all over it and um you know it's, it might be the most expensive uh art house film ever made it's also the most expensive reel for a cinematographer ever made, but it got Roger Deakins the Oscar, so 
Um, a lot of people were wondering after he got nominated 10 times for Best Cinematographer, what's it going to take for Roger Deakins to get nominated for Best Cinematographer? The answer was $165 million. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my yeah, gosh. So probably for the, the first Blade Runner, um, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I totally agree with what you were saying about how um, the first film is uh, building a world and introducing a world to the audience. So the first film has such, uh, such an enormous task put upon it. It's literally building this world and explaining this world to the audience. So the fact that it can do all this heavy explaining and exposition and still have a storyline and still be entertaining and still be fast-paced is actually really incredible. Um, So I feel like the second film really gets to enjoy standing on the shoulders of the first one because everything's already been established. Um, you've already watched the first film, so you understand everything that's going on. And now you're just kind of getting to enjoy the world that's been built and really stretch and explore the detail. So you can't have one without the other. They're, you know, they're a perfect set. Um, so the first one is all about, uh, you know, action and tension and creating these problems and setting up the mythology and then the second one is kind of like the ride continuing to its ultimate conclusion and one of the things um that you know the first film when it ended it was meant to be ambiguous there's been so many after the first film there were so many theories and things where people were like well is Harrison Ford's character, Deckard, is he actually a replicant as well? And he doesn't know it. So for a long time, um, <clears throat> Wrigley Scott said, oh, 100%, uh, Harrison Ford's character is absolutely a replicant, and he has no clue. And But of course, when we see the second film, um, it's answered pretty quickly. No, absolutely not. Harrison Ford's character is 100% human and always has been. Um, So all those theories um, essentially uh, get burned (laughs) because uh, we get that answer right away. But you can see how in the first film they completely meant for it to be ambiguous because there's so many clues um, when you watch where you're like, oh, no, I I think he is a replicant because when you see it, his apartment, especially, you see all his personal photographs. And even though the year it's supposed to be taking place is uh, 2019, um, the photographs he has of personal family members, they're so scattered all over time. Like he has pictures from like the Victorian era and just like, really out of place like there's no modern photographs it's odd especially when uh Rachel comes to his apartment and shows her what she thinks is a personal photograph of herself and her mother and the photograph she shows looks like contemporary 1980s people but of course that would be in in the past and then you look at his personal photographs and they're like almost daguerreotypes 
on his piano. So it's like, why would he have those old photographs? Why wouldn't he have modern ones? That's yeah, that's good. Well said, very well said. I thought that maybe the reason why he had old-timey photos is that he, in fact, was trying to do his own research to see if he was a replicant or if he was a real person, and he was doing, like, a lineage, like a family tree, and whether or not his uh, memories were true and whether those were his, and then in comparison to to the sequel, to the new one, there wasn't that kind of nuance in the background of of k trying to do the personal internal investigation the introspective he didn't do that unlike deckert did and so from the jump i was like oh he's totally a replicant 100 percent. i from the jump i was like no no he's okay <laughs> like maybe that's the new the new way that they go about finding replicants and retiring them and then that's why he does the baseline Mm -hmm. so in the first film um the base they establish the baseline in the first scene but in the term they use there is void comp and i've never had to do a lie detector test or anything like that but that scene is pretty intense that they show that they show and that's where they're you know really setting up the film the style of the film with the heavy shadows um you know the blinds with the light shining through the heavy smoke um just full-on invoking you know the film noir style um which is incredible they do such a fantastic job um and they totally pull from the 1940s aesthetic um with the way they dress um well obviously the way they dress rachel um aka sean young and the way they dress harrison ford with the long trench and the popped collar um and actually um one of the trivia things it said that uh harrison ford was supposed to be wearing a fedora the entire time you know like very uh sam spade humphrey bogart style but Harrison Ford had just finished doing one of the Indiana Jones, which obviously he wears the hat, and Harrison Ford just flat out refused. He goes, I'm not wearing the hat. Nice. Forget it. I'm not doing it. I did not know that. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about Harrison Ford? It's interesting to see all the other films that he's involved with up until this point in his career. But he for sure had already done Indiana Jones. Do a whole podcast on the history of Harrison Ford. Well, no, I was just going to say it didn't, it doesn't really fit. I don't really feel like in his catalog of work, it's... This does fit because it started a whole, uh, so Blade Runner started a whole new genre of films uh, which would come in the 21st century, which would be remakes of movies Harrison Ford did in the 80s. But now he has a son or a daughter, and he's trying to you know find them in the world. And that's what Blade Runner is. It's like that his his daughter with Rebecca is is the is the dream maker character, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is just about him bumping into his kid played by Shia LaBeouf. Oh, don't get then, me started. Force Awakens, you know, the, the, the last Star Wars uh, trilogy was just about, you know, the rise to power and um, ultimate um, 
in my opinion, very unsatisfying conclusion of the character of Kylo Ren, who is his son, uh, Ben, his son. So um, I, I think that um, at the at the time, Blade Runner didn't necessarily fit into um, Harrison Ford's career at the moment. But I mean, what is he? He's a he's a gun for hire. You know, he's he, which is his character in uh, Indiana Jones to an extent, and his character in Star Wars to an extent. Mm-hmm. So um, even though, uh, and it's also science fiction. So um, I think it fits perfectly with um, a lot of his a lot of his work, but um, you know, getting into that that philosophical you know uh, game and making him so vulnerable, right? Because he's the badass in Indiana Jones and he's the badass in Star Wars. He's the badass in American Graffiti. You never really saw him get into a situation he can get himself out of. And straight up at the end of Blade Runner, he's gonna die, and Roy could have killed him. But Roy shows him mercy and pulls him up, and uh, you know I guess he, you know Roy needed to tell someone that awesome monologue. So <laughs> therefore, Harrison Ford's character Decker lives, and then he's in the sequel. But um, yeah, the genre of of uh, <laughs> Harrison Ford's character from the '80s now has a child. It's like a whole genre of films. You know, I'm I'm curious what's going to be next. I'm waiting for a uh, uh, I'm waiting for a sequel to The Fugitive, where you know he has a he has a son who also gets. Um, into a situation where he's being chased by, I guess, now the son of Tommy Lee Jones. That'd be interesting. <laughs> the whole genre of movies. It's a whole genre of movies. Harrison Ford's 80s character has a child, and, and it's a new movie now. <laughs> can I, and then, can I just say that I, I know, Miguel, I know you, you mentioned that you're not the biggest fan of Jared Leto's character, but I like to appreciate the the creepiness of of the eyeballs and and the slick back hair and the very slow movements and how haunting he is i know jared leto is very specific and selective um in the parts that he chooses to play and i i'm very excited about the re-rack um the third installment of Tron that now Jared Leto is going to be playing but I actually appreciated Jared Leto's character because it was so creepy and when he kills the replicant that he didn't feel like was perfect enough I was like wow brutal and savage to know there is so much knife play in the second film. They really decided that the weapon of choice in the second film it was going to be scalpels, knives, and broken shards of glass. There's no, there's no, question, there's no question about it. It's just, it's a different level of brutality. So in the first film, Deckard carries a gun. It's, I don't know if it, they don't really say what it is. I mean, it's similar to what a blaster would be, I guess, um, to use a Star Wars reference, because it's futuristic. And K, Agent K, a.k.a. Uh, Ryan Gosling, also carries a similar type of modified gun blaster weapon. But when Harrison Ford, a.k.a. Deckard, in the first film, is hunting replicants to put them in retirement aka killing them his weapon of choice is a gun when he kills he's running and chasing 
and he fires from a distance, which is pretty dangerous in the crowded marketplace. And I don't really condone that because a lot of people who aren't replicants could have been taken out. But it's always from a distance. The second film, The Knife Play, with a knife, you have to be so close to make the damage. When he killed, when he killed Sapper, mm-hmm. uh, David, uh, Dave Bautista's character, um, he was up close when he shot him the final moments there. So there was like some up close gun play. So it was a lot more in your face violence in the, in the new one. Yeah, the new one, the violence is so personal. It's so, it's more brutal in a way because with knife play, you have to be so in the other person's space. Um, it's, I, 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 I close my eyes most of the time um, whenever I see the blades come out because I'm like, this is going to end bad. I don't know where this is going, but it's going nowhere good. So when Kara was talking about the whole uh, Jared Leto, uh, Neander Wallace um, inspecting the new models, I have my eyes closed and sometimes I cover my ears during that scene because it's too intense for me. And, and to your point, Heather, and, and having a background in criminal justice and forensics, um, yes, killing someone or using a knife as a weapon is so much more personal in comparison to using a gun or something like that. Um, and that is typically why if if there's a crime with a quote he, crime of passion it's whatever you have around you and it's typically a sharp object or a blade um where is a lot more premeditated uh violence or crimes is typically a gun so that plays into that it's it takes so much more effort to use a knife or and it, and also you have to be pretty skilled to use a knife if that is your your weapon of choice and you know they reference that in like the hunger games and things like that where it's an acquired skill to use well uh knives well mm-hmm. so- what do you think about the character of love and blade runner 2049 she she kind of moves around like a terminator yes she out of nowhere and um that that kind of made the film it, it took me out of my element uh, in the in the new film quite a bit. I, I didn't I didn't like I didn't like her I didn't like her character. <laughs> I I didn't like her in the fact that she was completely void of emotion, except for when Jared Leto kills the replicant that wasn't up to snuff and up to par, and then when she takes it personal. When Jared Leto's character tells her to take uh, the older aged Deckert, you know, to the facility, and then her and Ryan Gosling, Agent K, uh, are fighting in the water, she, you can see that she takes her job so seriously, and she, the emotion in which she is fighting and saying, I'm the best, she believes that. Mm -hmm. That she is the best thing that he has ever created. 
and how dare he think that he can beat her and then he does I mean and she gets drowned and I was like really if you're like like you said Miguel if you're like the Terminator you're not gonna I'm sorry I thought that she was gonna come back out of the water and go after Kay and Deckard I really didn't think that she was actually dead in the uh, the little vehicle in the water because I was like that's not gonna kill her that easily because in the Terminator they gotta melt them down and put them in the smelting pot so um but I, I agree Miguel I think she was like a Terminator-esque character um and she was kind of like Jared Leto's not just right hand quote person or personal assistant but when she goes to get those bones and she takes people out and then she goes and kills um the Robin Wright Robin Wright and she goes you got to do what you got to do when she crushes oh, that glass again with the glass again with the broken glass she crushes that glass in Robin Wright's hands what i mean the ruthlessness of that character I think is great. I, I again, I th I think maybe coming from different places of what we enjoy about the first film in comparison to the second film. I, but to your point, when you say you don't you don't like her or you don't like your character, I think that shows that the actress did an extremely great job because you're not supposed to like her. You're supposed to be like this is the worst person I've ever. Well, AKA Android. AKA replicant I've ever seen. She's terrifying. And so in that sense, I think she's amazing. The, and, and then the character that I love that they killed off too early without much purpose was joy was officer K's, uh, you know, artificial girlfriend. And it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an incredible performance. Um, Ana de Moss, Yeah. Um, great, you know, great, great performance. Um, She's, uh, she, she's a Latina, which is really great. And the relationship her and Officer K developed through the movie was absolutely beautiful and wonderful. And then perhaps the reason why I don't like Love's character is because, you know, she just destroys Joy. Could have just killed Officer K, but no, had to, had to destroy, you know, like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Like if, uh, you know, you went to go um, kill your arch nemesis at home, and then, uh, you know, instead of killing him, you know, you just, like, left him alone. And then you're like, you know what? But I'm going to destroy your PS4. You know? <laughs> uh, I'm going to crush your iPhone. Like, it's, a, it's just why? Why Why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. So. <laughs> Which, PS, isn't it interesting, the choices they make in the names for the female characters? Love and Joy. It was very philosophical. With uh, Joy said a lot of, you know, a lot of the things she... Um, talked a lot of the conversation with the officer uh k were um very philosophical about you know like um you know as far as you know existence goes and what it means to be born versus not born etc 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 i think in the future the reason why love is able to destroy joy so easily is that life is very precious and it can be lost in a moment and it was so simple and so easy for her to destroy that just by 
literally snapping that like a twig. And I feel like sometimes that's the way situations in life is that it takes one act to, to break that down. And so that it's a stick and that joy, you know, tells Kay, you know, if you put everything on that stick and something happens to that stick, I'm gone. And so he'll do anything to protect that stick, which is the one person that understands who he is and the one person that he's made that personal connection to. And it's also fitting that he himself is a replicant that we find out that he would have such a close bond and relationship with another piece of technology. So that's that there's not a backup of her at home. No, he had to destroy. Remember, they discussed that he he wanted to leave a backup, but she said you can't because they'll be able to trace you. You have to you have to erase everything. You you have to get rid of everything in order to be safe. That's right. That's right. But to your point about the actress uh, Anna de Amaris, I mean, being cast essentially as the perfect girlfriend. I mean, that has been so daunting, and she just is incredible. So as, as you said, um, her character is Joy. Uh, she's a hologram companion. Um, she's, as, as Kay walks through um, the dark and stormy uh, streets, um, it looks like it's snowing, but it's probably more um, like ash and... Um, pollutants and things like that and he's walking to his apartment and you can hear um, a, a PA system that's advertising her program and it says joy she goes anywhere you want her to go and so then he goes up his his apartment stairs and there's just people everywhere there's this crowded filthy apartment and he has to climb all the way up these stairs and it's it's loud and people are screaming and and there's this woman uh shouting at Kay and insults and all that stuff and he gets to his apartment and his door is sprayed with um slurs and graffiti and everything and he goes inside his apartment and the first thing he does is he turns on the program and you hear this voice of this woman and he starts talking to her as if you know he's very they're very familiar with each other um when we meet them it's obvious that they have an established relationship they don't tell us how long they've been together but the way they interact you can tell um they've been together a while you don't see her you just hear them banter back and forth they ask each other about their day and how they're feeling and like hey <clears throat> is starting to make dinner and he boy goes to the stove and he boils some noodles which i find interesting because in the very first blade runner when we first see harrison's ford character deckard he's waiting in the rain for a seat at the diner and he orders noodles can't be a coincidence that they did they had to have done that on purpose um yeah so anyway so he he's making the noodles and we still haven't seen the woman who this voice belongs to 
and he says, very conversationally, he goes, should we have a drink first? Do you want to have a drink with me? And she's like, yeah, of course. And so he pours two glasses of alcohol and he brings it into the front room and he sets it down. And they're still talking back and forth and we still don't see her yet. He picks up his glass, he clinks the glasses together, essentially like, you know, cheers before you drink. He takes the drink down and then automatically just picks up the second drink and takes it down. And you're like, okay, that was weird. You know, if you're watching it the first time, you're like, okay, why would he drink both? And then she's talking. He sets down his noodles on the table and he doesn't eat yet. And the voice says, okay, I finished making dinner. I'll bring it out. And she, and that's when she first appears. And this woman comes out and she's carrying this plate, a full steak dinner um, with like vegetables and potatoes and it just looks amazing and she sets it on top of the noodles and that's when you see that it the food is a hologram and she's a hologram and who he's been talking to this whole time isn't real so a lot happened a lot's happening in that scene you're seeing that the only person he's interacting with and has a relationship with doesn't really exist but he's fully aware she doesn't exist because he drank both drinks. He's not crazy. He knows exactly what he's doing, but it's a coping mechanism. That he would rather be. He would rather, he would rather have a relationship with a computer or a hologram than the crazy, horrible people that are outside. Well, he can't, I don't even think that's a possibility because no one wants to interact with him. They even when he goes into the police station after um, go, accomplishing his mission, he's uh, almost spit on um, by the other employees and called uh, a skin job or a skinner, uh, which is a slang term for a replicant. His options are hang out with other replicants or have joy. So you know that's why that's why that's why joy is there. Yeah, that's right. Pretty much it. Cruel. It's a cruel existence for, um, essentially, he's just like a, like a product. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, it's like if you're, uh, if you're, if your computer, when you put your computer to sleep, your computer actually went home somewhere, and then when you need your computer again, look it up, your computer would have to come back. Um, that's how they think of him, just as, as, a, as, as an afterthought, and his happiness, you know, whatever, um. It was never, I never really understood, like, how he gets his, like, his paycheck, you know? Like, was he saving up for the Emanator for a while? Well, that's the thing. So, if you watch, um, because he did such a good job finding the grave that had, that had the bones in it, they give him a bonus. And what does he do with the bonus? He immediately goes out and buys the Emanator. Right. He's kind of, you know not okay because the only other person that really somewhat cares about him is Robin Wright aka Madam aka Lieutenant you know she praises him and says you know he's the best she has and he did such a good job and everything like that but right when he's leaving you know he says when she tells him he needs to go find Find this find the child and terminate it essentially and he's conflicted about that because he's never killed 
a human before. And he says the line where, well, to be human is to have a soul. What's the difference? And Robin Wright says, well, you've been getting along just fine without one. The look on his face is devastating. I there's a lot of sad parts in the in this movie, but that's the first one. You're just like he gets in his flying car and his like level of depression is just so palpable. And so when he gets there and he starts interacting with this hologram and she's so kind and she's so sweet and she's just care has this just aura of caring about him she starts trying to elevate his mood um she says oh do you want do you want to read to me that always makes you feel better um do you want to go dancing or things like that all the activities that she lists they're it's meant to tell you these are things that they do on a normal basis and he gives the emanator but he presents it as a gift to her because he wants the reaction of her happiness. So he's buying the emanator for her, but he's fully aware that he's buying it for himself. So he's kind of living in this semi-delusion, but he's aware that he's fully deluding himself. It's very strange and it's kind of trippy. Um, yeah, it's like his baseline test. He's aware that he has to go in and take this test to make sure that he has no feelings. And he's aware that there are members of his kind who are rebelling that run. But he knows that any, you know, anyone that is not defective will not run. And he's definitely not defective and, because he doesn't run and he does what he's told. <clears throat> so it is, it, is, it is very interesting. But um, I think part of the philosophy of the movie is, is uh, you know, what... Like, what is a soul? Like, are you just born with a soul? Or do you live and develop and earn the right to have that soul? And how is his life different than, like, you know, a lot of people who do the grind every day? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, maybe harder to compare for today's society. But in the society there, um, it wasn't really you know, clear, but, um, you know, in the, in the first Blade Runner, you know, they're, they're down, uh, at the Chinatown level, you know, we have the famous, um, scene where, you know, there's, you see, uh, City Speak, you meet, um, uh, you meet, uh, Edward James Olmos character, um, Gaff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get to see that, you know, there's, okay, it's, 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 it's the future, um, looks a little, looks a little rough but uh okay they got noodles you know they got some real food uh you know it looks good so um i think that that part that seemed kind of suggested in this future like things are like even worse the overcrowding the overpopulation and everything's perhaps even worse and then his shower lasts like a second right it's like burr, he just gets sprayed with a shower and, you know i would i wouldn't mind that just like one high pressure rinse you know, I could do that. i'd be totally down for that um it's uh, it's it it, it shows it, it shows you that not only is is his future, or, or is is his existence in this future very depressing, but perhaps most humans are having a depressing future as well, 
and um, the most human thing he can do, you know, later on when he discovers that he's nobody special and he fights for the cause, it's it's to reverse or, you know, try to at least resist this existence, which is not great. Right? And <laughs> it seems like he has no problem exiting that existence. He doesn't even think twice. When when you're talking about in this future of yeah what what in fact does make you human, or what consists of having a soul, um, is it emotions? Is it a is it a set of morals? Is it how you live your life? Because I would argue the fact that K is more quote human than most of the people who are actually people because. He seems to care, and when Robin Wright tells him that he has to go kill the child, and he is a bit, uh, he's not really, he's visibly uncomfortable, and she says, well, what's the difference? Even though you've never killed an actual person before, what's the difference? It's all the same. Um, so, Robin Wright's character, you could argue that she doesn't have a soul, um, and... I know that the way that they test the baseline um, in the original movie or the original film and then the new film with Ryan Gosling that if anything all of his actions and how he lives his life is more human than most of the people that he interacts with or the other characters like Love um, Robin Wright uh, Jared Leto uh he, if anything, K is the most human out of all the characters. And then when he meets Deckard, I, I mean, I feel like they're one and the same. And that's why K believes in his heart of hearts that he's the child. And then when it's revealed that he is not and the utter disappointment of thoughting that he thought that he was real, but he's not. He's the one that's the replicant that's been implanted with the girl's memory to find the child, Deckard's daughter. Again, that emotion, that is, that's what it is, I think, to be human. Because he thought that he was the chosen one. And the leader of the rebellion goes, we all wish it was us. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry that you thought it was you, but it's not. Mm -hmm. There's also a theory that I found on Reddit uh, by a user named uh, UB40 <laughs> that supposes that Neander Wallace, Jared Leto's character, is meant to be a replicant. And I gotta say, the first time I saw the movie, I was kind of under the impression that Neander Wallace was going to be revealed as the child. Because he was searching for the perfect specimen to create the perfect specimen. Am I the creator of the perfect system? Because he had, his character has such a God complex. And when he creates his brand of replicants, he calls them angels. Which kind of infers that he is God because he's creating all these things. And it's like, why would he be imbued with this sense of self? And I'm like, oh, it must be because he knows that he's the only product 
of a human and a replicant. So obviously, that's why I thought he was so obsessed uh, with having his henchmen uh, collect the bones to help cover up his own identity. Um, and he spurs on um, Agent K's investigation and has Love uh, undercover uh, trying to help him discover um, the the wooden horse in the furnace and that whole thing. And I thought that because K is a, a Wallace Corporation uh, replicant, I was like, oh, did Neander Wallace, is he the one who implanted his own memory? I was thought they were going to reveal that the, the horse in the furnace memory was what happened to Neander. And I was just like, that's where, that's why I was like, and why he wanted, uh, Kay to be successful in finding Harrison Ford and bringing him to him and, you know, grilling him. And I thought the reason that Neander Wallace wanted Harrison Ford's character um, brought to his lair so badly was just purely out of some sort of um, sick revenge um, on his own father. Um, I really thought that was what was going. Obviously, when they have that confrontational scene, that's not what happens at all. It's not ambiguous at all. Um, and it's but not it would, that. It would work because it kind of is a running theme in that genre of movies I mentioned earlier of Harrison Ford, you know, encountering his, his son in a sequel. Yeah, uh, totally. He has the same kind of interaction with uh, with Kylo Ren, right? Yes. And The Force Awakens. So uh, that's, you know, very plausible theory given, the, given this theme. Mm-hmm. Anyway. They didn't call me and ask my opinion during production, so that didn't happen. It's there's you know um, a lot of left open ended for us to kind of digest and think about, and I think that was the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. They did a good job doing that. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, our general audiences kind of wanted more spelled out for them. Yeah. I think that most people just come away from Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Seeing that, uh, you know, there there was uh, it's 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 very beautiful. Um, the the future doesn't look that great uh, as far as uh, you know living in it, and um, you know uh, a lot of great performances. For sure. Never in that movie. And uh, when I saw it in the theater, I saw it at IMAX, and it was absolutely glorious. Oh my gosh! And then, as the Blu-ray was released, I bought the Blu-ray. And I have a 7.1 surround sound system at home and a 60-inch TV, and it is an event to watch. <laughs> it is an event. I... So before that, I mean, a comparable film like Gravity, you know, and uh, The Revenant were, you know, like, and this like tops all of them. It's just so, you know, so 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 well done. So it's and, and that's kind of gets kind of that's kind of the idea. It's it's about. Um, it's about a feeling, right? Like we're 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 meant to, to leave the theater or, or, or turn off the movie and be left with uh, with with a feeling of what it's like to you know be with these characters and, and go through what they did. There's not necessarily a big moral to the story or or, any, or anything like that. Um, and uh, that feeling that you have helps you 
to have an imagination and come up with your own conclusions to what the films are trying to tell us. And I think that's what kind of makes it more, that's what makes these, these films very powerful and, and, and uh, attractive for people to discuss and rewatch and, you know, feel, feel connected to is that these films discuss what it is to be human and what defines us as human, what defines us as having a soul, um, finding meaning um, to your to your existence and uh, seeing you know um, a very evil part of society taking place because the whole concept of the replicants is, is a disposable workforce right like the, uh, it looks like the future is really overcrowded I don't know why they wanted to make more people um, this doesn't really make a lot of sense to me but okay you know uh, there's a bit of a water and food shortage you know what we should do we should create organic things that do stuff for us and feed them based on this very limited supply of organic material we have. It doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Why don't they just make more like, you know, robots? I don't know. Maybe uh, it, it looks like the sun's never out. Maybe they ran out of, you know, there's no possibility for solar power and um, all the uh, plutonium's used up. I don't know the specifics of that for the universe, but it just seems that um, we're seeing a, uh, a very flawed uh, future that has a lot of um, a lot of questions in regards to what is right morally and while the characters can't really reverse that in a big way they could at least do something small and be a part of at least finding meaning for their existence to contribute to the greater good you know there's not like you know there's no like I am Iron Man moment at the end of this, right? Like you know, like at the end of the Avengers, you know, Tony Stark saves everyone by snapping and getting rid of Thanos. There's no, there's no moment like that. It's just uh, not a lot is actually accomplished. The trajectory of the films in the universe that they're written, the way that the Uber narrator is telling these stories, is not really affected by Roy's death or Kay's death, but it is what it is like you see the character's life for what it is and i think that's what makes these films stand out there's no save the world moment and stuff looks like the world is screwed no matter what and i think that's why it makes them really nice to talk about there's no definitive <laughs> conclusion i think was also to your point is that when we decided to re-watch these films we had to make the choice of okay do we rent it do we find it a place to stream it or do we buy it? And I'm happy to say that we bought the double disc edition. Oh, very nice. So now we own it permanently to enjoy forever and ever and ever. Talking about, yeah, there's no Iron Man moment and that Kay um, and Decker kind of just come to this moment that it didn't matter in a sense that what path that they chose and they just kind of die um it didn't matter what they did it didn't affect anybody else around them and the disposable workforce i feel as though that that is how people get treated nowadays that a lot of blue collar um working class are seen as being disposable and that it carries on into the future generations into 
Blade Runner uh, and the sequel that it's strange to see that they have the technology and the ability to create a disposable uh, replicant workforce that still requires nutrition and needs water and it's orga they're organic instead of like a Terminator that's just made out of steel and, ro and robotics and wires made to look like they're human but they don't use any kind of um, organic resources. Well, the reason that I think they're organic is because if they go rogue, they can be killed. You can't kill a Terminator. Well, you can. It just takes a lot of effort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's right. <laughs> okay, can we talk about the music from the first film, which is entirely composed and performed by the art, electronic artist Vangelis. I mean, the soundtrack for the first film is so groundbreaking and incredible. Uh, do you know the film that he composed for right before this one? Uh, no, I, I don't know, actually. He composed the iconic soundtrack for the film Chariots of Fire. They just see everybody running on the beach. So he he composed for that film. He won an Academy Award, and then he was hired to do the entire track for the Blade Runner films. Um, film, excuse me. The, the big detail for me, um, because I I'm a big fan of, of film um, soundtracks. There's uh, just so many out there. But, um, you know, my, my Spotify playlist has a ton of film soundtracks on it and whatnot. And um, he used the Yamaha CS80, which is a, a, a synthesizer. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not a musician by, any, by uh, any degree. But from what I understand is that, that that specific unit from Yamaha, it had like a, a, a quality to it where it would kind of breathe with the keys and had a more organic feel to it. So while a lot of other film soundtracks at the time that were going electronic felt very artificial, um, this soundtrack, he was able to still have like a, a, a more natural feeling to it. Like it felt more organic. And I find that interesting that he chose to use, he chose to use that, that Yamaha synthesizer that has that quality to it in a film that is constantly talking about like, you know, the replicants are artificial yet they look organic mm -hmm. and whatnot. I, I, th I think that's really cool. There's, there's a lot going on there. And I think that's also a, a quality, just, you know, all the pieces lining up perfectly that make the film a classic. And it's also a classic soundtrack. It's one of the most revered soundtracks of all time. And as far as electronic music, it was just like, you know, everything before and after that, like that, that is what defined, um, you know, the, the genre and like the technique for using um, electronic instruments for composing um, film scores. Mm -hmm. One of the most poignant pieces of music, of course, from the first film is during the final scene on the rooftop in the rain, where Roy is, essentially he knows that he's dying. Um, so he makes the choice to not let Decker die and he pulls him up, literally pulls him back from the edge 
and Deckard thinks, well, obviously I'm going to die. He's going to murder me and that's it. And instead, Roy <laughs> holds a dove in his hand and essentially gives this almost Shakespearean soliloquy um, as you can see the life beginning to leave his body. I've seen terrible things. I've seen beautiful things. All these moments just are lost like tears in the rain. And the music that they create for that moment of synthesizing violin, violin strings and metallic piano, it mimics the feeling of melancholy and the rain and the coldness. It's just so incredible, so haunting. And so when we come to the second film and Kay has defeated Love and he delivers Harrison Ford, a.k.a. Deckard, to the Dream Center so that he can meet his child for the for, oh, for the first time in forever we we know from the wounds that Kay has that he, he's it's not going to be able to be repaired and he's dying in the second film rather than rain we have a gentle snowfall Kay sees how badly he's wounded and he lays down on the steps and just watches the snow fall all around him and he just accepts that he was able to do something good for someone and the the song from the first film which is titled Tears in the Rain begins to play and it's just so incredibly beautiful. Definitely, I agree. Yeah, I, 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 love, I love the soundtrack as well and have a great appreciation for it. Yeah, I love the use of the very um, delicate, almost, um, I don't know, xylophone-esque piano hits um, throughout uh, the first film to convey... Uh, delicacy or tenderness and there's a film that I love when I was little and it was a cartoon called The Adventures of Unico uh, which is about um, a little unicorn his purpose in life is he brings people happiness and joy and I when I heard when I, we were re-watching and I heard it's so similar to the music that's in that cartoon and I was like oh my god did Vangelis do the music for that film uh he did not um but it's freaky how similar it is it also makes me it also makes me really sad when both replicants die because it's like oh god but they've served their purpose heather yeah <laughs> well that, that's the idea you know they're they're they're, they're dying because of uh, in, in some way the the sins of mankind have led them to this moment where they have no other choice but to do this and uh think that's kind of what those those films are are, are, all, are all about do you think that there's some you know similarities in that these replicants 
have no choice in the matter, that that's what they're built for, that do you think that there are, that you could draw similarities in real life in nowadays that people feel like they don't have a choice in their life, that this is the path set out from them for them and they can't deviate? Oh yeah, definitely. And, and you know, they're not the way that the, you know, the replicants are hunted down by the other replicants and whatnot. You know, there's not a, a different strategy than hunting down people, right? Like, so I think that uh, there, there's a lot of messaging, uh, messaging behind the scenes of, of that for, you know, what, how people treat each other, you know, classism, uh, you can get you can get really deep into it, but um, you know that's that's that, that's very true. I, I you know when I see the movie, I don't I don't see the replicants as as replicants. I just see them as as other people, and 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 uh, you know and throughout history, you know humans as a, as a species of, of certain civilizations and nations and kingdoms have decided that a certain class of people, even though they look similar, and they are similar. Uh, and they're organic, uh, still do not deserve rights or are expendable in some way. Edward James' almost character says about the replicant Rachel, it's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Yep. <laughs> there And there you go. I know we touched base on, on the uh, cinematography, but how the film, how both films are actually shot, Miguel. Right, yeah, Roger Deakins for 2049 won an Oscar for um, for best uh, for, for best cinematography for, for 2049. The color design, um, the way that he he shapes light in a lot of scenes, um, the the the, comp- the composition, um, you know, everything's just 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 stellar. The the camera movements are all very motivated. Um, Roger Deakins has a, a style where he uses a lot of a lot of natural light and a lot of very you can argue they're more simplistic lighting setups, but he scales everything really, really big. And he's a true artist. He paints light into his scenes, and it's it's it serves the mood and serves the purpose. It's not just there for it's not just for style and, and kicks. Um, it, it, it's serving the story in a, in a huge way. Um, the original uh, Blade Runner was shot Cronenwith, um, the was a cinematographer for that, and you know he uh, isn't. Um, known as as a one of the great cinematographers of, of that of that decade um he worked he worked on a lot of i would say more obscure films um and and blade runner is is, is a standout piece in in his uh in his resume but there's a lot of really bright highlights in the background and very subdued and shadowed um, subjects in the foreground um, the way that the neon lights are shot, it's a lot of telephoto lenses, where I, I think in 2049 we, we see quite a few more wide shots. Um, the telephoto lenses in the original were done because um, they didn't want to make it feel like it was a set. And um, there are alternative takes. You know, there, There's like five versions of Blade Runner out there, and uh, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes footage, and you can find alternative takes, and there's, you know, coming into Chinatown there are wide shots and we get to see a lot more of it and it feels a lot more like when you watch uh, Back to the Future and they show the, the city square and you know it's a freaking you know it's the you know it's the set you know you know it's on a you know it's on a studio backlot it has that feeling but these telephoto lenses that um, 
they used in, uh, in, in the original Blade Runner, um, you don't have to be told what the rest of the street looks like. You, you know, you, you could you could fill out the details um, for yourself, and it's more about what's the care what the character's doing, and um, it makes it feel a lot more real. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that um, the original Blade Runner had a lot of there were some. It seemed like there were some production limitations that led them to shoot it the way they did, and I think they um, were it, it, it was brilliant the way that they did it, and uh, you know they used you know the limitations to their advantage. Um, whereas 2049 was a 165 to 185 million dollar um, cinematography reel for Roger Deakins, which he used the, the money very. They used the money very wisely to create that. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the you know um, the newer Blade Runner, um, there are scenes that are very neo noir, but there are a lot of scenes that feel a lot more just sci fi, or they look a lot more like Roger Deakins' other work, uh, especially like a lot of his westerns and things that take place outdoors um so he uh i i think it works really well i think it works really well um perhaps the first blade runner was too stylized in neo-noir with all that 1940s stuff and whatnot i think the cinematography for both films is is, is phenomenal and i think that uh that uh Cronenwith is a uh, uh, jordan Cronenwith that his cinematography is super underrated He's super underrated as a cinematographer, in my opinion. It's it's interesting how different uh, the look and feel are of the two. And uh, the second one, uh, Deacons, the cinematographer, uh, some of his past credits are The Shawshank Redemption, The Big Lebowski, and No Country for Old Men, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So he definitely don't has forget, a style. Don't forget Sicario. Yes. Which is really, really well done. Yeah, Sicario is really good. He's he, he's great, and he he adapts to all the direct, all the he works with a plethora of directors, and he adapts to all of them really well. But um, I think that the first Blade Runner kind of set the tone for what Roger Deakins needed to um, work with and establish. And there's you know beautiful scenes where we see um, like the when they're inside the um, when they're inside the uh, the, the compound, Ugh. right. Um, and they were gonna, you know, they're gonna go into the archive and all that. The, the way that like the the walls were opening up and let in light, you know, those those uh, you know, very very high contrast. You know, we have like beams of light and like shapes and like you know, make shafts of of, of sunlight coming through or whatever um, is is around. Uh, you know, Roger Deakins is playing with that, but that style was established in the in the very much established in the first uh, first Blade Runner. This this gritty look is how this um, this world is to be displayed. Um, so really, yeah, really, really cool. I think that those films would be much different if those two cinematographers didn't work on them. Oh, 100%. Everybody brings their own artistry to the game. And when he goes uh, to the lot, when Kay goes to the Las Vegas desert uh, to find uh, Harrison Ford's Deckard and he's walking through the orange clouds and the smoke and the dust and the dirt and there's these huge statues everywhere and everything's just absolutely so quiet and still as if he's like the last person on earth um the the imagery that came to my mind is uh from the film never ending story um when atreyu has to go to the sphinx's gate 
and he comes upon these huge, enormous statues. That's that's the thing that came to my mind. I think it's interesting that Kay's partner is a drone. That he, you know, it's like uh, he, he's talking to this little drone, uh, this little computer, this little friend that comes out of the top of his cruiser, out of his car, and goes, Hey, watch the car. <laughs> Watch the car, take pictures, the whole thing. He talks to him like he would talk to, like, an inferior partner. But, Miguel, you're you're a guy that uses drones. Do you talk to your drones like that? I yell at my drones all the time. They, they never do what I want. They complain. It's too windy up here at the higher altitude, you know? So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the lens fogs up because there's quote-unquote fog up there like how am i supposed to know at the ground level (laughs) do do they actually use drones to shoot some of the new blade runner film i'm not sure but i i I can't imagine a world where they wouldn't use it um you know the uh they're 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 using area lexus on it um you know deacons likes those cameras uh those are mounted on drones all the time but yeah definitely they use drones for sure yeah, uh, drones are really abundant on on most on, on most sets uh, or most productions. Rather, um, they're really easy to get. Um, Roger Deakins was using um, a lot of. Uh, you know, he's 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 a cinematographer. He uses lots of toys. He's not afraid to um, shoot with uh, digital cameras. He can shoot on film. He can shoot anything. So definitely um, possible to use drones. I don't know the specifics. Um, I definitely saw a couple like you know jib and crane shots in there. The other thing is the, that Heather asked the, the question earlier uh, that, oh, I've never had to take a baseline test, which is kind of like a lie detector test. I have. I've had to experience that. And it is a very intense and scary experience to go through because you feel, because your, your emotions, your heart rate, your breathing blood pressure, everything is being measured. And so the baseline is the question that's not supposed to give a quote response or that's your baseline response. So when Kay is doing the baseline and they're like, you're way off your baseline. Nowhere I'm like, near your baseline. nowhere near. And I go, I don't think I have a baseline. <laughs> I think I'm all, the needle is flying all over the place. <laughs> Yeah, with the you know with the lie detector test, I think, uh, you know another one of the uh, themes of the of the movie is um, like the attempt to suppress real emotions, and then there's this whole other aspect of of the of the film where uh, in the story that um, you're trying to create fake things and pass them off as real, trying to you know do the um, the fake memories right versus the real memories and what feels more organic or how do you make a fake memory believable, right? Mm-hmm. You insert the feelings into it. So there's the, the film opens up with a suppression of feelings and then the film in the end is, uh, is, a, is a total acceptance and an embrace of your feelings and going with what you want. Miguel, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fun, thanks for having me. <laughs> So everyone, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll wrap it up by saying... I'm not complaining! I'm just asking. <laughs>